honest questions with honest answers. This is Unfiltered, brought to you by the Emergency Medical Minute. Happy 2020. We are excited to announce a new collaboration that we're going to be doing a lot with this year. Uh, There's an exceptional group of podcasters with a lot of overlap with our cohort over at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. The name of their podcast is EM Guidewire. There's great clinical content. There's great extra clinical content on there. They have great faculty and residents who are actively involved in a number of interesting projects, and we're going to be collaborating with them a lot. We're going to be doing some collaborative work with them, with speakers, and lots to look forward to. So keep that on your radar. And as part of that, our first collaboration is with one of their outstanding distinguished faculty members. So Dr. Vivek Tayal is a pioneer in our field of emergency medicine. He has had a long, distinguished career. Uh, I can see why he was picked uh, by the powers that be on, on their end and as well uh, as on our, our end to, uh, to be our first distinguished guest. Um, he's been uh, instrumental in the creation of ultrasound as such a vital, integral part of our field. And he's got fascinating perspective on the kind of a longitudinal uh, look at how ultrasound has developed over the, over the course of the last 20, 30 years. Um, and how he's been instrumental in that. And so without any further ado, I'd like to welcome onto the podcast, Dr. Vivek Tayal. Uh, welcome, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Nick and Nate. And, uh, you know, it's an honor to be here and look forward to telling your uh, uh, listeners about, uh, you know, some of the things that have happened to me, but it's a great honor to be here. So. So we we've had a we've had a, a great time getting to know each other over the last a couple of hours here in the studio. Uh, Dr. Tayal is coming to us from a homemade recording studio in Charlotte. He's been exceptionally patient with us as we figure out how to make sure that his sound comes through, and uh, we appreciate his time. Uh, and then over the course of the time that we've had, he has shared some insight into his story. So if you wouldn't mind kind of sharing with us. Um, kind of where you come from, where you've come from, how you got into this in the first place, and uh, and some of the very uh, um, interesting parts of what ultrasound looked like back back in the day when it, it really hadn't even started to exist yet. You know, thank you, Nick. Well, um, just to introduce myself, I'm a uh, a native of the north uh, D.C. area, uh, born in Washington in the JFK era, and uh, grew up in Northern Virginia. Uh, it's a great Great place to grow up and uh, had a wonderful schooling. Eventually went to the University of Virginia for undergrad. and But then um, I think I picked medicine because I was interested in science and um, wanted to work with people. And uh, I think it just sort of fit what I think I wanted to do in, in terms of career. Uh, though I wasn't naturally uh, attracted to medicine like I always wanted to be a doctor type thing. But um, uh, got accepted at the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond um, in the 1980s and had a uh, very great clinical experience. Uh, Joe Arnado was a mentor in the Department of Emergency Medicine. He's still there, actually. Um, one interesting thing about um, my experience at MCV was we, as a third year, the AIDS epidemic started, had started, and we started to get patients who were AIDS, who had AIDS, and we really didn't know, you know, the whole situation. I mean, there weren't antivirals and things like that. All these patients had immunocompromising diseases, and 
a lot of people were scared. I drew all the blood on my patients with AIDS by myself because the nurses were, were concerned. So it was an interesting time. Um, it really, I saw the, the fear of uh, my patients then and uh, it really touched me. So anyway, it was a developing ex you know, uh, time for me as a physician. Uh, when in, you know, thought emergency medicine, uh, how did I get into emergency medicine? I, uh, happened to be doing a community practice rotation, my second rotation in third year, uh, on the Eastern shore of Virginia in a hospital called Nassawatics and it was a small hospital, uh, very rural, but, uh, it was the only hospital for the Eastern shore of Virginia. And we had a lot of, a lot of, uh, sick patients and, but there was a tight bond between the physicians there and the community, and I was really touched by that. At night, I really didn't have anything to do because we stayed at the hospital. So I came down to the emergency room and volunteered to see if I could do anything to help the physicians there at night and started to learn about emergency medicine. And I was like, I think this is what I want to do. You know, it sort of attracted me um, that uh, the pace and the type of patients they were seeing, they let me sew, they let me do other stuff. So, um, I was like, okay, I think I know what I want to go into. So, um, eventually there were no EM rotations, um, at least in third year there. And then fourth year I did rot a rotation, uh, matched at Charlotte Memorial, which then became Carolina's medical center in 1980s. And, uh, had a great faculty member, uh, faculty doctors Baker, Schaefer, Meyer, Rungi, Ford, Martinez. A lot of them you may know as from national positions like Schaefer, Dr. Schaefer, Meyer, ASAP. Dr. Rungi went on to be the head of NHTSA and Homeland Security medically, and then Dr. Ford toxicology. A mentor of mine was Bob Schneider, who really taught me to to be a assertive, aggressive physician, as well as Dr. Ford. Um, rotations were great. And one thing I'd just comment on for all the residents out there, you know, like our rotations in the 1980s, sometimes they weren't, they didn't really fit exactly. Um, they were longer than like we had, I had a plastic surgery rotation for six weeks, but I got a lot, I got to do a lot on plastic surgery that had nothing to do with plastic surgery. So I really learned uh, a lot, you know, from my, my, uh, uh, my attendings and uh, the staff on those rotations. Um, two episodes that sort of pushed me into what eventually would be an ultrasound career or two incidents that I can remember for your listeners were on the late third year, <clears throat> I had a middle-aged male with back pain who was hypotensive, came into one of our resuscitation bays. And after, you know, we were concerned about aortic aneurysm. We consulted general surgery and vascular surgery and, they continued to have a prolonged discussion, which eventually led to patient sending the patient for a CT. CT scans took 45 minutes back then. We had to get someone to jump on the bicycle and start on the, you know, start pedaling the bicycle. <laughs> exactly, we needed to, to, to power to, it up. Exactly. Running the hamster wheel, yeah, I got it. And so the patient went up there, and as you probably can figure out, the outcome was not what we wanted. Uh, the patient. Uh, succumbed, and I had to tell the family, and I was really uh, pretty distraught about that. Um, the other things were like when we had ruptured ectopic patients or patients were ruled out ectopic, we had to do cultusentesis sometimes, and that's brutal, mm. just brutal, not a good thing. So, um, and not a great test. So, I knew there was got to be a better way. Uh, went into the Air Force as uh, I had a scholarship and uh, got selected to go to Wolford Hall Medical Center and. 
there were new two new faculty members, Dr. Mike Girardi, who went on to be ASAP president, and myself, mm -hmm. and Dr. Dalsey, who was the chair at the time, said to each of us, I uh, need you guys to take on some responsibilities. And Dr. Girardi took on the liaison to internal medicine, and I took on ultrasound. <laughs> and... Um, you know, that's how I got into ultrasound. Dr. Dalsey offered it, and I took it. So at that point, I sort of started to take courses around the country and make an effort to get an ultrasound machine at our emergency department in the air at Wilford Hall. It took me all four years, but we finally got Ultramark uh, ATL4, Ultramark 4, and it was uh, one with a mechanical probe. So, you know, even back then, that uh, you know, the technology had, was maybe primitive, but did a great job. And uh, we started to use ultrasound towards the end of my career in the Air Force. Uh, got to do a lot of things, got to be a research director, assistant chair and chair, and uh, learned a lot in the Air Force, got great experiences, um, did some really cool stuff. And, uh, you know, I have nothing but praise for the United States Air Force and my experience. Um, finally, you know, thought, I was probably going to return out to civilian life and uh, return to CMC. The department had changed. Dr. John Marks, who you've talked about in other prior uh, podcasts, uh, was the chair then, and he was a fantastic chair. A lot of new faculty, Chris Tomaszewski, Mark Girk, Tom Blackwell, Russ Kearns, Jeff Klein. Uh, so we had a lot of, in addition to all the older faculty I knew, and it became a real hotbed for research and for innovative stuff. Uh, during the 1990s, so uh, I was happy to be there, took on responsibilities for QA administration, some airway stuff, and produced a paper in that, and then uh, on RSI, and then ultrasound. So Dr. Marks was supportive, but I had to work uh, to get resources and, uh, teach and some education, so I uh, took courses for sonographers around the country, and then I went to uh, Australia to do a preceptorship uh, in Adelaide uh, for six weeks and um, really learned a lot of hands-on ultrasound skills beyond just the learning the, the uh, content, so to speak, and uh, uh, have great friends there still. Uh, it's sort of sad that I had to go across the pond, so to speak, the, the western pond, to, to get some training, but that was okay. That was okay. So... I uh, came back, uh, got a, a machine in the, my department in 1996, and we got going. And that's how a lot of our programs in the United States, uh, out of the necessity to start doing ultrasound for clinical reasons, our waiting room in the 1980s was full of uh, pregnant patients who had complicated first trimester symptoms such as bleeding. And it was just unacceptable to wait while radiology or an OBGYN was, had to come get get them in line to do an ultrasound. So uh, we had the support of OBGYN and the support of trauma at my department. And that's true, I'm sure, of many departments at that time across the country. Now, I think for your listeners, I think, um, as you pointed out earlier, Nick, ultrasound was <clears throat> something that now you think is just part of the water. You know, it's accepted. You, you know, they're po pocket-sized machines. They're machines that you can buy for $2,000, you can, you know, there's machines everywhere. But that wasn't the way it was back then. And just to do an ultrasound in your department was actually an act of war sometimes. So <laughs> we were um, uh, across the country, there was a lot of frustration by uh, physicians, community and academic physicians, 
And eventually, Cal ASAP, led by Evelyn Cardenas and Diku Mandivia, who went on to be the section chairs of ASAP, uh, ultrasound section chairs, uh, got a resolution passed through Cal ASAP that went to the ASAP Council, that which got passed to send to the AMA saying that hospitals should judge specialties and their use of ultrasound by their specially specific guidelines and not base our guidelines on on what radiology does which and they were requiring just ridiculous requirements and to block uh, the use of ultrasound by clinicians so uh that was the ama house of delegates uh, resolution 802 which was approved in 1999 and that set the stage for um uh, where i sort of came in i happened to be a uh, member of the ASAP section in the SAM ultrasound interest group, and Sarah Stamer, another great uh, uh, ultrasound leader. Um, and Evelyn had said it was fine for me to start developing uh, the especially uh, specific guidelines as a combined effort between a- SAM and ASAP, and we did. Uh, and we produced it in the spring of 2001. Uh, eventually, we got it through the uh, ASAP board in June of 2001. Uh, there was controversy in the room from others, but the ASAP board was uh, unanimously supportive. And I will give Mike Carius and the ASAP board and, and Bob Schaefer-Meyer a lot of credit for really um, thinking and, and being uh, brave in, a set, in the setting of um, trying to break through the barriers for clinicians uh, at that time. So that was it. Honestly, as soon as the ASEP 2001 guidelines were approved and, uh, you know, it sort of broke the ice and allowed a passage for point-of-care uh, clinicians like emergency physicians uh, to, to use ultrasound in the hospital. And that, because I think what it did was it said to the world uh, and the medical community, here's what we're going to do. This is our scope of practice. This is our education. This is our credentialing. This is what we're going to do for QA. And then it sort of set the bar- the parameters so people were not worried that we were going to be doing some you know, weird stuff, which we eventually did do, by the way. <laughs> um, so, um, That's but right. the old uh, switch. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's sort of like we're, we were doing it for cardiac arrest. We weren't doing it for... Uh, looking for, you know, a uh, following up a cancer patient after three weeks of chemotherapy. That wasn't our goal. Our goal was uh, emergency medicine uses. And so I, I think that really helped. Eventually, um, uh, you know, the RRC, SAM, and all the, all the groups in um, uh, emergency medicine adopted it. We got acceptance by AIUM and the American Society of Echocardiography eventually. And you know, I think it's been, that was a big, big step. Um, I will say that, you know, there were a lot of contributing members and the ultrasound section of ASAP has been an incredible resource over the last 20 years. I'm happy to have been contributing to it the whole, you know, the most of the time. And so, uh, you know, we have had a lot of great leaders. Created a ultrasound management course for our uh, our, our members in ASEP who wanted to learn how to run an ultrasound program, and uh, that's been going on annually before ASEP Scientific Assembly 
annually since 2004. And that led to me writing a book, which I was <laughs> shocked. I'm surprised I ever wrote a book in my life, but I wrote a book with Troy Foster and Mike Blavis called Ultrasound Program Management based on the course. So, And damn right you should have, Vivek. You know, thank you, Nick. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, then the ASAP guidelines in 2008 came out, and we, 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 that really was the guidelines that showed the innovation of ASAP. Uh, while we called the applications in 2001, you know, they were sort of typical ones. They were trauma, pregnancy, gallbladder, renal, uh, uh, and uh, procedural guidance, uh, and aorta, and cardiac. In 2008, we really broke open some innovative uses such as thoracic, ocular, adopted DVT, soft tissue MSK. And I think that showed the disruptive and innovative nature of emergency medicine using ultrasound at the bedside. Um, And now it's sort of a a given that we're going to be using a different use almost every day, it seems like. Um, There were threats of uh, in the horizon in 2008. There were threats of um, people not wanting to pay us, and uh, that came from, our again, our friends from other specialties. So uh, they were going to ask for accreditation of special imaging such as CT, MRI, nuclear medicine, and then they were trying to include ultrasound, but luckily the ultrasound section in ASAP um, got that deleted, and that was a great uh, great uh, positive thing that happened for our colleagues in, the, in across the country that, you know, it is a service and, you know, that gets paid for in a small way, at least. ASEP's uh, ultrasound section created Sono Guide, which is an online teaching tool, which is now, uh, you know, morphed into many, many online tools for in on ultrasound. It's gone into the medical school and people like Dave Bonner, Chris Fox, Tom Cook, uh, really were some of the initial leaders on that. I will say, you know, as time went on, the the understanding of a, uh, and the use of ultrasound, it got a little, um, you know, people would use different phrases to probably try to get it through their systems and all that. And that one term that got used was extension of the physical exam. And we, I think that while it seems natural, because it's so it's done at the bedside, it became problematic because uh, I think it is a different skill set. It is a different knowledge base. You have to know where to put your ultrasound for a win- to get a window. You have to know how to use the machine itself, so even basic machines, and then how to interpret it and apply it. And so we didn't want that as just a, an extension of the physical exam. And so that was another thing that we've been emphasizing over the last five, 10 years. Uh, uh, and you know, as, as you know, uh, ultrasound fellowships have proliferated. Um, there's over 120 now. Uh, that's crazy. I mean, that's, it's, it's unbelievable. And ultrasound fellowships really weren't for learning ultrasound. We all want ultrasound, uh, to be learned in residency, or if you didn't get it in residency, uh, on, um, you know, through courses and then, uh, doing them in your department, but it was really meant for leaders or people who wanted to have that repertoire in their academic um, portfolio as they were moved on in their life, whether they did international, whether they did military, they were going to do something else, or they want to do research, they were going to, or they were going to be the ultrasound director or wherever they went. And it is a skill set. So, um, and 
it, in 2008, I had set up a subcommittee in the section, and that was led by Risa Lewis. And then eventually uh, we voted as a section to pursue uh, certification through ABEM as a subspecialty, and that came through in the last two years as a designated focus practice. So um, that's being um, that's already through, and then we're now in the next year or two, they're going to start having uh, accreditation of fellowships and a test for certification for ultrasound subspecialists such as uh, myself and others. So that's pretty cool and you know I've seen the whole development of a felt of of this field and I think uh, you know it's you know again very satisfying. In 2016 we uh, had new guidelines in ASEP uh, for ultrasound and added BAL. Uh, TE was also mentioned again as well as some other advanced uses in uh, ultrasound. You know, an ultrasound is not just used in hospital emergency departments. It's used um, in, first of all, other emergency departments, point-of-care uses now in hospitalist and critical care settings. It's used now in family practice and, and other specialties. But emergency medicine was the one that broke it open. It's also used in international, uh, military, remote like space uh, applications, cruise ships, uh, and then, um, you know, we'll see what happens in the future as well. Uh, there are now separate TE guidelines, so uh, that's, that's, you know, very exciting as well, uh, the, the advent of TE, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot of other new applications. I think... Absolutely. Could you have ever imagined that it would look like No, this? no, no. And I, there's even more exciting stuff. Honestly, Nick, I think you or your generation might be using ultrasound contrast at the bedside. And um, I'm expecting to see actually therapeutic ultrasound. Like um, it is possible if you were working in a remote uh, ED that you might be able to use ultrasound to break up clots with the use of contrast or by itself and save um, a emergent transport till the next day, um, whether that's an MI or something else or a stroke. So, I mean, that still needs to be developed, uh, but I mean, we have a lot of young people who are very smart, and I'm sure they're going to look into the research of that as we move forward. So uh, there's a lot of ex exciting stuff uh, in ultrasound. Um, I got to teach around the world and around the country, uh, teaching the emergency ultrasound course with Tom Cook and Pat Hunt, Ken Hines, and uh, I love meeting, meeting other doctors of all specialties and teaching others, and it's been really, really satisfying to do that. I love hearing stories from other people. So, Speaking of stories, can you shed some light on what it was like in the quote-unquote days of the Wild West where back in the early 90s, you know, very few early adopters of ultrasound um, kind of kicking the tires on what its uses could be in the emergency department. What sort of things did you see or, or stories did you hear from those early kind of pioneer days of, of ultrasound? Well, <laughs> I would say to you that, uh, you know, there was always the war stories about trying to get it through your, your hospital and your, um, you know, your, for your department and your hospital, uh, or your hospital system. And some of the, uh, you know, just ludicrous things that would be said or to prevent us. There, there were hospital hospitals where the ultrasound machine was chained up, so the emergency physicians could not use it. 
<laughs> I'm not kidding. And so, it, it, and the other thing, oh, you should know, Nick, is that, I mean, this is really a sad state of affairs back then. In the 1990s, um, ultrasound uh, 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 companies were threatened by uh, some other specialties to not market their ultrasound machines to us or any other point of care user, or they wouldn't buy machines. <laughs> so that was, I mean, it was, it was very um, on the edge of, you know, uh, a, you know, legal issue, I would say, or uh, uh, so, yeah, that was that was incredible. Um, I mean, you know, we I I think, you know, I think you have to understand what emergency medicine was like if you didn't have ultrasound. So you, we were doing DPLs and and sometimes CTs for abdominal trauma. Um, and you know, I I know even from stories from my Denver colleagues, there were people uh, that would get DPLs who were wide awake. You know, so and they weren't shocky because DPL is a very sensitive test, but you know it just seemed a little bit invasive, if you will. You know, so um, right. for our listeners out there, diagnostic peritoneal lavage, Doctor Tyell, since I <laughs> since I've, I've done a, a less than you would find on the number of fingers on one hand, uh, Doctor Tyell is going to tell you about how easy and facile it is to draw fluid from the peritoneal cavity in the acute setting of the trauma patient. <laughs> well, essentially we, some patients would have to actually be tied down. So because they you know, were like, what the heck are you doing? You know? And then, um, and then, you know, you would numb it up the skin umbilically if that's, you know, if it wasn't a pregnant patient and then you would, you know, and go down to the fascia and place a catheter in and aspirate and then lavage. And I, Poor Dr. Marks. He, this, this was one of the things he researched, so he's probably turning over in his grave right now. But, um, but yeah, it was a great test. It's just very overly sensitive. Uh, for and you know, for and this, you know, I, I know you uh, people like in your area in Denver and certainly at Carolinas in for cardiac trauma, gunshot wounds, stab wounds to the chest. I mean, we were doing windows, open thoracotomies um, if they were hypotensive it, it was not <laughs> it was like very invasive for for the patient and then and for pregnant patients who i mean as i mentioned we had uh, done cult, I mean, we would do coldesynthesis or sometimes observation but uh, it was there were a lot of things that i think ultrasound would sort of revolutionized i think re- ultrasound has revolu- revolutionized the fact that we don't have to do needle thoracostomy on every patient that we mm. decrease decreased breast sounds on. So, uh, and there are a lot of, a lot of other things as well. Um, right. one thing I, d- I wanted to say, Nick, is that, you know, um, I, during that 2008 to 2000, now 20 time, we, we developed an accreditation in, uh, for ultrasound accreditation called uh, clinical ultrasound accreditation program. And I think recent developments in our, uh, issues that have come up internationally and nationally about the supervision and the structure of point of care ultrasound uh, bring to the forefront the fact that uh, ASAP has its own accreditation program for ultrasound. It's not very expensive. And I encourage all your listeners to have their department go through it. Um, 
I think it'll be a it's a badge of honor for some you know for some people. It also legitimizes your program, and all you have to do is really have a um, a director, and it doesn't have to be an ultrasound trained person. They feel like a fellowship person, but it would be great if it was. But um, you have to have a credentialing. You have to have a machine, obviously, and you have to have QA and a cleaning protocol. And I just it tells I think the community and um, the other specialties and the public that you're doing things in a safe manner and you are and you're doing things according to a national um, uh, specifications and standards. Uh, so you know, just I mean, it's been a it's it's been really cool. I, I guess everyone knows about uh, you know the development of ultrasound in terms of the uh, the size of machines are down to your iPhones, as you know. And um, they're going to be even smaller machines. I think they're going to be put on the, the tip of uh, other scopes and other machines. And we'll see like, hybrid-type uh, uses of ultrasound. And again, like I said, I'm anticipating therapeutic ultrasound in addition to all the diagnostic and resuscitative ultrasound we do as well, as well as procedural guidance. So. That's uh, it's exciting. I mean, the, to think of how far... It's come in under three decades, and uh, and to, to try and project forward uh, the new frontiers is exciting. You know, when a lot of the guests we have on here, and we we the purpose of this podcast effectively is to interview folks who uh, have just changed changed the world of emergency medicine. I mean, pioneers like yourself, and and some of the most interesting kind of stories and and discussions we've had on the podcast have people just have been people reflecting on their time and saying, you know, to think uh, when I started, things looked like this and now I do them like this. Um, and I would ask if, if there's anything that comes to mind as you look back and I know you have a lot more innovation and, and pioneering to do, but as you look back on your time, I mean, going back into the, your training, the mid to late eighties, and look back on your career, do you have any kind of reflections in that way? And, and yeah, you know, and it's, it goes beyond ultrasound. I mean, but, and by the way, um, Nick, I did um, one of my other passions is uh, health policy. Mm-hmm. I got to be the, you know, on the North Carolina College of Emergency Physician Board and got to do some stuff there. I, you know, I will, yes, I do have some, you know, comments on that. Um, I think the integrity of a specialty, especially a one that, has a very short time to introduction, um, uh, like emergency medicine for our patients. I mean, we we have like within you know ten to seconds to a half an hour to sort of get to know a patient before we have to actually act. And it's it's important that especially has uh, an, an integrity. I got to um, back in the nineteen in the two thousand as president of NSEP. I had to testify in front of the North Carolina Medical Board regarding um, some other boards that were asking to be recognized, and I, I defended ABM and uh, the ABMS um, because, uh, on the behalf of North Carolina ASAP. And I thought, it, you know, it's funny. I it was just a terrifying experience, but uh, I thought in the end it was actually one of the probably bigger things I've done for our specialty. Um, you know, the other thing I would say is, you know, I think with the volumes that we have seen grow over the last two decades or three decades since I started practicing, 
you know, honestly, the 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 amount of acuity and 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 stress and all it continues to grow. Uh, honestly, I would I would say the 1980s were sometimes I think a little easier. <laughs> you know, it's it's a little sad to say, but um, I. I I find that I feel like the emergency medicine is often asked to carry a lot of the weight of the healthcare system, and uh, whether it's opioids, uh, whether it's uh, domestic violence, whether it's um, gun violence, uh, you know, whether it's uh, other other things like that, injury control, toxicology, it, we're we're doing all this stuff, and we. We do things like ultrasound even, and it reduces time to diagnosis, but we have such volume that it just sort of overwhelms sometimes some of the good things that we do. Uh, I think we have a lot of work to do on the on the healthcare system to try to provide more capacity to, to people so that they can get the care that they need in a more timely manner and in a more economical manner as well. Uh, but I think, it, you know... I was telling um, uh, your friend Travis and others uh, recently about the fact that I think it's just been a great career. I, I don't think you'll ever go home and feel like you didn't do something uh, in medicine. And that is that's something to be said. You know, the, you have contributed to the welfare of not your just your patient, but your 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 department your community and your country and the world. And that happens every day, um, millions and millions of times a day across this world uh, in emergency medicine. And uh, as Dr. and President George H. Bush said, there are a million uh, uh, centers of light across this country, and those are the emergency departments in this country. Uh, I get pretty frustrated when I hear emergency medicine criticized, whether it's out of, out of, uh, out of, a uh, network balance billing and things like that. Well, some of those things should probably be solved and we are working to solve things like that. Um, you know, uh, if you had to pay a thousand dollars to, for the, uh, satisfaction and knowing that you were safe from having a, an acute emergency, that's what has happened. You know, that needs to happen. And uh, I don't think uh, we should feel sorry about that. Uh, I, I think the services of all the resources that go into providing doctors, nurses, emergency departments is nothing to be ashamed about. The other thing I would say is, you know, especially in this day and age of things like uh, pushing back against vaccines and not believing in uh, other science and not noticing changes in the climate and things like that is that it is up to us to take the responsibility to uh, represent medical science and represent that on a daily basis to our patients so that they can understand that they're being treated on the basis of not just um, algorithms and things like that, but actually science. We, you know, whether vaccines, how they were developed, uh, how the, uh, how DNA sequencing is going to be affecting them, uh, new molecular 
uh, treatments for whether it's heart disease or uh, cancer. Uh, you know, the, all those things are so important, but we use those every day. And ultrasound is a great example of that. You know, all of us took physics in high school and college. And then, you know, what's ultrasound? Ultrasound is the application of physics with engineering. You use sound technology and sound physics in application to a human body to learn something what's about what's going on inside. And it's such a cool thing to look inside the human body. I mean, you know, we usually do our physical exam by examining the outside. But when we are able to do an ultrasound exam, we can look inside the body and know what's going on within seconds or minutes. And that is unbelievable. And it's happened in my lifetime. It's unfathomable to people who, as you said, who practice in even as recently as the 80s to think that instantaneously and without any discomfort to the patient, you can visualize every major body cavity at the, you know, at the drop of a hat with a device that fits in your hand. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. So, and, you know, I, um, I will say, you know, I think our, our residents are quite talented now with, uh, with ultrasound and uh, our graduates are, and I know their stories from across the country. I, people will come up to me and tell me about, you know, the aortic aneurysm they found or the tamponade or, and I know they use it for uh, IV access and central line access and other things like that. So, it's pretty cool, um, and, and it makes me very satisfied that, you know, it, it's had, it's occurred. I'm sure it'll even get better, um, and I'm, you know, happy to hear, you know, that things have progressed. So. And, the, and to use your own words, there, you know, there has to be a better way. And I think that your work with ultrasound is just a microcosm of, of your career that reflects those words. I mean, we've only scratched the surface on your experience with health policy and your experience with education and disaster preparedness and homeland security. And, uh, I, you know, I think our listeners generally can't listen to a 10 hour podcast, but we could probably fill one with your experience. I do, <laughs> I do want to ask about in turn in the same vein of there has to be a better way with public discourse about particularly for the 2020 election and health, you know, health policy discourse, I'm not asking you to solve the the United States healthcare system in a podcast. Although, stay tuned, that could be episode two with Dr. Tyle. But I, but for now, I'm just saying, what what would be the major important points you would want communicated to an audience about the the discourse about changing the American healthcare system as we come into an election year? Well, I think. Um... Nick, one thing I, I would I happen to be up in Washington on ASEP um, sponsored ASEP, uh, health policy fellowship in 2009 2010 and in uh, the emergency care coordination center at uh, the in HHS under the assistant secretary for preparedness and response. So I happened to be there at the beginning of Obamacare and how it was developed. And I will say that I thought Obamacare was a big advance. But it was an advance that I think could have been done a little better, you know, and I am a supporter of it. But I think one thing that I would say is, while a lot, you know, a lot of ideas sort of sit there up in Washington and wait for the right time. So that's exactly what happened with Obamacare. We had a president who would be willing to do it. You had a congressional uh, majority. But I think if uh, we had done it, had done things a little differently 
especially with deductibles and high deductible plans, emergency medicine would not be in the position it is today. And that is patients, including myself, do not like high deductible plans. And they, it causes resentment. It quest, makes them question what they're getting, and they don't realize sometimes the efforts that we make uh, on that. So what I would say to you is that, you know, while whether, whether it's Medicare for all or whether it's um, uh, these other insurance plans, we need to make sure that the, the plan works for patients on a daily basis or in a, on a affordable basis so that they're not they're not picking out um, they're not going bankrupt for um, a, a, a trip to the emergency department or for their CT scan for their mammogram or whatever. I think uh, going you know the other thing is I would say is you have to know the country. I think you know Medicare uh, the Canadian healthcare system the English system the Australian system. They may be fine for those countries, and they, they have a lot of positive things, but we do need to create a system that works for America, whether you're in the middle of South Dakota or whether you're in Washington, D.C., or Southern California or Denver or Charlotte or Alaska. Um, so how do we do that? It's a pretty tough uh, you know, ask, but I do think it's something that as we move forward, we need to, to think about. I would say I'm totally in favor of the fact that Insurance, uh, administrative costs in insurance companies is just sort of ridiculous. And, it, and what, whatever happens, that needs to be uh, reduced. What, what will happen with the 2020 election? Well, we'll see you know, who gets nominated on the Democratic side. And uh, we know Dr. President Trump will be there on the Republican side. So I think health care is one of the big drivers for uh, getting young people and older Americans to vote, and I'll, I think it will be a high, uh, a, a big issue for the 2020 election. Absolutely, and we, it, it's a very high probability that we will be bringing you back to talk about some of those issues as they continue to be brought to the forefront, with your permission. Of oh, course. course, of course. <laughs> we, um, we are so fortunate to have your perspective, um, and I think um, we could talk for hours about um, where you think the field is headed, um, major challenges that you think the field will face in the next 10 to 15 years, um, and where personally, where you find, you know, your next, uh, exciting adventures to be. Um, I would, I, I would just close with, 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 with that perspective and that any, any thoughts about next steps for you personally and, and how that relates to where we're going as a, as a field? Um, I'm not sure. Um, you know, you know, we'll, we'll see for me, I, uh, uh, sort of feel like Tom Brady, uh, you know, <laughs> one of you, and uh, uh, we'll see what what's what's up for me. What's the There's potential? There's no way that they don't renew your contract. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to no renew way. it here, but There's we'll no see way. what happens. But uh, uh, but no, I you know I I'm here for the time being, and certainly love contributing to uh, what's going on here at Carolinas and all that. Um, I have a great division, by the way, great ultrasound division, and. Uh, uh, Tony, Margaret, uh, Denise, Vitaly, uh, Patrick, and Lindsay are, are fantastic people. So just want to, if I may say that. Uh, so it, it is great to lead a division of such talented people. Uh, I just want to say, you know, Nick, um, I have such respect 
uh, for emergency physicians across, um, again, the country, the work they do, whatever hour of the day, um, and the situations you're put in, uh, it's an honor to be a colleague of, of yours. So just, you know, my, my message to them. Well, we are honored to be colleagues of yours. We are, we look in awe at your career. We look with excitement to your next steps and we thank you so much for your time. Uh, we look forward to having you back on the podcast as soon as possible. Uh, any final points on, on your side, Dr. Tayal? Uh, you know, I just, I guess I would just say that, you know, my, my life as in emergency medicine was being available for the moment in life when you were asked to do something and it changes your life, you know? So just be available for that time, wherever, wherever you are, because it'll, it'll make you satisfied and, and it give you uh, fulfilling life. Well, thank you for being available for us. And in your own words, there there has to be a better way for the sake of the patient. And you have dedicated your life to that. And for that, we thank you. And uh, uh, this is Nick Sippis, the host of Unfiltered Podcast with Dr. Vivek Tayal of Carolina's Medical Center. Thank you. We are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.